Good evening, everybody, and we'd like to welcome you to episode 10 of the First and Foremost Podcast. I'm your host, Quentin Douglas. And I'm Jimmy Covington. How you doing, Jimmy? Man, I'm doing good, bro. I'm super excited to be done with school. I wanted to scream at the top of my lungs when I turned in my last assignment, man. I've just been on cloud nine ever since then. How you been, bro? Pretty good, man. Celebrated graduation all weekend. Then uh, treated my mom a little bit for Mother's Day yesterday. You had yes, a sir. birthday this weekend, didn't you? Yeah, man. I was actually supposed to have my graduation ceremony on my birthday, but you know, coronavirus and other plans, but it's all good, though. I still had a good birthday. No doubt, no doubt. Well, happy belated birthday to you, and happy belated Mother's Day to all the mothers out there listening. Yes, sir. Well, we got some good topics lined up for today, man, so let's get right to it. Uh, Starting off, you know, the 2020 NFL schedule has now been released. Uh, So here on the show, we're going to kind of do our own predictions of the team's records for 2020. So today we're starting with the NFC West. Jimmy, how do you see that division playing out this year? Well, in first place, just like last year, I have the San Francisco 49ers uh, taking a step back by one game. Instead of going 13-3, I have them going 12-4 and 4-2 uh, and two in the division. In second place, I have the Seattle Seahawks. They'll be 11-5 just like last year. Uh, I have them going 3-3 three and three in the division. In third place, I have the Los Angeles Rams going 9-7 and seven, just like they did last year. And they'll also be 3-3 three and three in the division. And I have the Arizona Cardinals uh, improving from a 5-10-1 record and finishing up 8-8 eight and eight with a 3-3 three and three record uh, in the division. Oh, for the 49ers being number one, it was kind of a no-brainer. They're clearly the best team in the division. And uh, they the only major loss they suffered was the Forrest Buckner. But you can argue that they replaced them in the draft with Javon Kinlaw. And, you know, they added some weapons on offense, uh, Brandon Ayuk. And, uh, you know, continuity will only make them better. Uh, Jimmy G having more time with the receivers. Uh, they're going to add Jalen Hurd, who missed most of last year. I think he'll be a weapon in that offense. They added Trent Williams, uh, a perennial Pro Bowl left tackle before he didn't play last year. Uh, you know, so I think that team will be, you know, better going forward next year. Uh, Seattle is who they've always been. They're a winning franchise, a winning team, especially with Russell Wilson, at quarterback. So they'll find a way to win games and end up being in the wild card again. So, you know, they're going to make some noise as usual. Uh, I know they suffered. They lost Jadavion Clowney, and they added a few guys, you know, via the draft and free agency. So we'll see how that works in terms of the pass rush uh, next season. Uh, they added Quinn Dunbar as a defensive back, so that's going to help the, the back end there. And uh, with the Rams, I had them, you know, pretty much being the same as they were last year. They lost Todd Gurley, but Todd Gurley clearly wasn't himself last year. And they added Cam Akers in the draft, uh, who's a talented running back out of Florida State. So I think they'll find a way to manufacture offense. They also added one of my favorite players in the NFL draft, which is Van Jefferson, a wide receiver out of Florida. He's a route technician uh, with good hands, and he has enough speed to separate. So I think that'll that'll help offset the loss of Brandon Cooks, too, as well. And I have Arizona, you know, like I said, making some improvements. They added DeAndre Hopkins, obviously, you know, Isaiah Simmons. You know, so they'll, they'll only get better. They also drafted a tackle. So, you know, they'll definitely get better. Uh, I see Kyler Murray taking another step forward next year. I think they'll be better with Kenyon Drake, Drake for the full year for, as opposed to only part of the year running back. So I think that team will be a lot better going forward. I think that's, going, that's the best division in football, I think. 
and I don't think it's I think it's pretty easily the best division from top to bottom. You know, those games always go down to the wire, uh, game in and game out. And I enjoy watching the NFC West play football. So I think this year is going to be another crazy year for that division. I 100% agree with you, bro. And I think for the most part, our predictions were like pretty similar because just like you, I agree with the fact that the NFC West is the best division in football. I mean, last year we saw week 17. That game between the 49ers and Seahawks came down to centimeters, and that could have completely, you know, changed the outlook of the NFC playoffs last season. But for me, once again, like you said, I have the 49ers win the division. I have them going 12-4. and four. Uh, Of course, it will be big. A big loss for this team will be replacing DeForest Buckner. But I think what they did where they got younger and cheaper there, and I think they'll be able to replace him by committee uh, because they were still able to maintain some of that depth. I think Brandon Ayuk is a cheaper and younger upgrade over Emmanuel Sanders. I know he brought a lot to that locker room as a veteran last year, but his production wasn't that great. He only had two games with us where he had over 40 receiving yards. So I think that's a place where they got better. And then the retirement of Joe Staley, I don't think they could have had a better transition than moving to Trent Williams. Because like you said, before he was injured, he was a top five, arguably the best left tackle in pro football. And then once again, like this team had a deep playoff run. So of course they'll have more experience and had quite a few injuries last year as well. I know guys like D Ford, uh, they all missed significant time last year. They restructured Jared McKinnon's com- uh, contract. So he could contribute this year as well. So I think once again, it's probably going to come down to that week 17 matchup against Seattle. And I'm giving the 49ers the edge since it's at home this year. Now in second place, I have the Seahawks. I think they were a team that was pretty underrated by a lot of people last year. You know, outside of Russell Wilson, uh, a bunch of their guys aren't really nationally recognized, you know as the guys like the Legion of Boom once were. But, you know, despite their injuries, you know, despite their lack of, you know, household names, Russell Wilson, who's a top three quarterback, has this team competing and contending uh, year in and year out. Um, And so I think with some injury luck going their way this year, along with some offseason moves, I think this team could very well be right in the thick of things next year. Um, And then looking at the other two teams, starting with the Cardinals, I have them at nine and seven. I love the trade of DeAndre Hopkins, uh, you know, offloading David Johnson. Uh, Like you said, Kenyon Drake will be Kenyon Drake will be healthy this year. I love the draft pick of Isaiah Simmons. He was arguably the best uh, defensive player in this draft outside of Chase Young. So I think that team will be marginally better, and I think they'll be able to compete uh, in a lot of ball games this year. And I think they could upset some people. Uh, and then looking at the Rams, you know, I still see them being eight and eight. And that's as the fourth best team in this division. Like I said, all of these teams are going to be tough outs for the league. And I mean, still looking at the Rams, they still have Aaron Donald, who's the best defensive player in football. Uh, Jalen Ramsey will have a full year uh, with the team this year. And like you said, they made some pretty good draft pickups, too. Uh, so just looking at this division from top to bottom, man, I think. This is easily the deepest division in football. So, 
I still th- I still have the 49ers edging out the Seahawks this year, though. You get no arguments from me on that one, man. Yeah, no doubt, no doubt. So let's keep it pushing. Uh, like we said, the NFL released their uh, schedule for next season. So, Jimmy, what are the top five NFL games that you're looking forward to watching next season? Well, that was it was kind of a tough one for me. But once I looked at the schedule, I was just like, you know what? I, it's going to be a lot of case Kansas City Chiefs, uh, the Super Bowl champs. So for the first uh, – well, I'm going to start from five. So at five, I have week 13. I have the Dallas Cowboys at the Baltimore Ravens, uh, two teams that can run the rock with the best of them, you know, two good young quarterbacks, you know, some exciting defenses. So I think I think that will be a low-scoring one, maybe, you know, like a 2017 game. And, I, you know, I'm going to go ahead and tell you I'm picking Baltimore right now. Even though I'm a Cowboys fan, I'm definitely picking Baltimore. I think the difference maker is going to be Lamar. He's far. I think he's far better than Dak is uh, in terms of what he does at the quarterback position. So, you know, at five, that'll be that for me. That'll be Dallas versus Baltimore. At number four, uh, week 10, it'll be, you know, a rematch of last year. The San Francisco 49ers at the New Orleans the New Orleans Saints. Uh, last year, the 49ers won in overtime 48-46. to 46. Uh, Jimmy G balled out of control. You know, George Kittle was a monster down the stretch, uh, like he usually is. And so I think that's going to be another exciting bout for me. Uh, also, at number three, uh, at week 15, uh, the Kansas City Chiefs traveled to Tampa Bay to face Tom Brady and the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Uh, you know, last time Tom Brady and Patrick Mahomes met was the AFC Championship game. So, you know, no, excuse me, no. <laughs> I'm sorry. Last time, the last few times, <laughs> I don't know what I'm thinking. The last few times they've met, it's been it's been pretty exciting. The last few times they've met, so you know Tom Brady has a new cast of characters and some better some better weapons on the offensive end of the of football field. You know, it'll be a lot of high. I think it's going to be a high scoring bout. You know, the the Chiefs lost some pieces. Uh, you know, in terms of quarterback, they lost their best cornerback. So we'll see how that works out. Um, we both when we both know. Tampa Bay Buccaneers, their defensive backs is probably the weakness of the team. So, you know, with Pat Mahomes and Travis Kelsey and adding Clyde Edwards Lair and Damian Williams and, and Tyreek Hill, you know, their offense is gonna be electric as usual. So we'll you know, I believe it's gonna be a high scoring belt. Uh and then number one is week three. Uh Kansas City at Baltimore. It'll be a rematch of the game last year, uh, which Kansas City won 33-28. The last two MVPs to face off once again, I think. And, uh, you know, I think Baltimore might have the edge in that one just because they're at home. So those five games for me are going to be must-watch games for me. Yeah, man, I think on this one, this is another one of those topics that I think we pretty much agree on. Um, I think the one disparity, my number one game, or my number five, sorry, that I have, I got the 49ers traveling to New England. Uh you know, Jimmy G coming off a Super Bowl run. This would be the Patriots' first season with, uh, you know, Tom Brady not dressing out in their uniform. And, you know, a few years back, you know, Garoppolo was viewed as the heir apparent to Tom Brady. But, you know, they decided to keep Tom Brady. And now here you have Jimmy G facing off whoever, you know, Jared Stidham or whoever that uh, Bill Belichick would choose to take Brady's place. And I think another intriguing matchup in that game will be the rematch from the Super Bowl between the Falcons and Patriots of Kyle Shanahan against Bill Belichick. 
and I think Bill Belichick coming into that game is going to try to make it really miserable for Jimmy G. Uh, so that game will be interesting for me to watch. Number four, I have the Packers and Buccaneers. Uh, out of their long story careers, you know, this is only the third time that Aaron Rodgers and Tom Brady will face off against each other. Uh, and they beat each other one apiece. So for this to possibly be the last time that they play each other and it'd be for the tiebreaker, uh, I think that'll be a pretty intriguing matchup. Um, for number three, I have the Chiefs at Saints. I know you have 49ers at Saints, but I don't think it'll be able to live up to the hype that they had last year. Uh, but I think this Chiefs and Saints game uh, definitely will be a high-scoring game down in New Orleans. These two high-power offenses inside that dome, man, it'll be a sight to see. And, you know, I think for a lot of people, you know, there's always these people that hype up the Saints before the season starts. So some people could be picking this as their Super Bowl preview. So you never know. And then at number two for me, I have Chiefs and Ravens. I think you also picked that one too. Uh, once again, headlined by Mahomes and Lamar Jackson. I mean, what better could you ask for? Um, they had a pretty pretty good game against each other last year where um, Kansas City beat Baltimore. But this time is in Baltimore, so I believe the Ravens might be able to squeak this one out over the Chiefs, and this could possibly be an AFC championship preview. Um, and then number one for me is Chiefs and Buccaneers. Uh, I think this game, I know they've already faced off three times, which Brady's ahead 2-1. But I think this game will officially mark, you know, the passing of the torch uh, from Brady to Mahomes, as you know, the, the best quarterback in the game. Uh, and I think another headline for this game, it'll be interesting to see uh, Travis Kelsey and Rob Gronkowski on the field at the same time, who are arguably the two greatest tight ends of this uh, generation. Uh, so I think that'll be a pretty, pretty exciting game to watch. So those are my five biggest games that I'm on the lookout for this year. Man, you get no argument from me with those. Those are all going to be great games. So you definitely going to get any, you don't get any pushback from me on those. Oh, yeah, and definitely, we definitely going to be on the lookout for 49ers and Cowboys this year. We coming into Jerry's world and snatching y'all hearts out. (laughs) (laughs) That's hilarious. That is hilarious. I I don't think that's happening. You better hope Dak is starting quarterback and not Andy Dalton. (laughs) Hey, Andy Dalton, James Dalton, it don't matter. Cowboys 2017, what you mean? (laughs) Cowboys 8-8. But anyway, uh, next topic on our list, we have the NFL award predictions for this 2020 season. So, Jimmy, I guess on this one we can go uh, award by award and give our picks. Uh, So who do you have for MVP? So for MVP, I have the 2018 NFL MVP, uh, Patrick Mahomes. I don't think he'll be 50 touchdowns again, but I think you can expect something. Around 35, 37 touchdowns and probably about eight or nine interceptions. And obviously, they'll be one of the best teams in the league once again. So I think that'll, you know, his statistics and the wins, I think that'll give them the edge. Yeah, I once again completely agree with you. I think it's Patrick Mahomes' award to lose at this point. Uh, You know, like you said, he was the 2018 MVP, 2019 Super Bowl MVP. 
Uh, so with their offense still being intact, Andy Reid still calling plays. Uh, they upgraded the running back position with Clyde Edwards Hilaire out of LSU, which I think he's a pretty good running back, both in the run game and in the pass game. Uh, so that offense should definitely be uh, explosive as usual. And, of course, he'll be the point guard, you know, distributing the ball to everyone. Uh, so the next award, Offensive Player of the Year, who do you have winning that? So uh, for Offensive Player of the Year, I have Lamar Jackson, who was last year's MVP. I think you can expect probably about from 3,000 to 35, 3,600 yards, somewhere in there. Uh, I'm expecting 30 touchdowns again. And uh, I'm expecting the rush numbers to be high. I think maybe a little less yards, maybe about eight or 900, but I'm expecting more touchdowns. I'm expecting at least 10 rushing touchdowns this year. So I think, you know, his dual threat ability and the amount of touchdowns he'll score, I think they should give him, you know, the offensive player of the year edge. Okay. I can't argue with Lamar Jackson. I wouldn't be mad. But uh, for this one, I picked Dalvin Cook. I mean, I view him as the best running back in the league. Uh, I think, you know, last year he was really the number one reason that they were able to advance to the NFC division round. Like, he carried the bulk of that team on his back. And I think this season, you know, they'll run the offense through him, you know, a little bit more. And, you know, with that, I think it, it'll translate to him ending the season as the, the NFL rushing king. So I think that'll translate to an Offensive Player of the Year award. So who do you have winning defensive player of the year? So I'm going to be, go ahead and be honest with you. I know we're going to disagree on this one. Uh, but for me, I think the guy should have been in consideration last year uh, by the way he helped transform the Chiefs' defense. And I'm going with Tyra Matthew, man. Uh, I don't know why he doesn't really get any defensive player of the year love. But last year, uh, think about it. He's a 5'9", 185-pound safety who plays slot corner as well. Uh, last year, he had 75 tackles, four interceptions, 12 pass deflections, and he had a couple sacks, and he had three tackles for a loss. So he's literally all over the field. He's one of the only safeties in the league that can cover your number one receiver. He can rush the passer. He can play in the box, and he can play deep middle. Uh, he's I mean, he's a matchup. He's a matchup nightmare on the defensive side of football. So I think, you know, the way he's able to affect all facets of the game, he's going to produce in all facets of the game. So I think, you know, that along with team success should make him a defensive player of the year candidate, and I actually have him winning. I think he should already have one under his belt back in 2015. But, you know, I think at some point he has to get one, man. He's too versatile of a defender, and he does too many things well not to get consideration, and I have him winning this year. Yeah, I don't know, man. I don't know what the deal is with you and Tyre Matthew, but he is not going to win no defensive player of the year. He's a baller. Uh, That's the deal. My, yeah, okay. <laughs> but my pick for this award, a dude who, in my opinion, is one of the more underrated players in the NFL, I'm going to go with T.J. Watt from the Pittsburgh Steelers. Uh, I mean, last year was only his third year in the league. And, I mean, every year he just continues to get better and better and better. Last year, I think the, the Steelers were a top-five defense in the NFL. And, of course, they missed the playoffs. But with Big Ben coming back this year, I think that team would definitely uh, be a dark horse contender to make some noise next year. But I'm going to call out his stats from 2019. He had 55 tackles, 14 and a half sacks, eight forced fumbles, two interceptions, 
and eight passes deflected. And this is as an outside linebacker, or I guess, you know, pass rusher position. But, you know, he gets to the quarterback, you know, he strips the ball, and he can drop back in pass coverage and, of course, play against the run. I think he's just a do-it-all Swiss Army knife type defender. And I think if he continues on this projector trajectory, you know, he could easily have 18 sacks this season, right around, you know, eight forced fumbles again. He could possibly get one or two interceptions again. And I think if the Steelers are a playoff contender and they're getting more national attention, I think that could, you know, catapult him to winning defensive player of the year. He's definitely uh, one of my favorite defenders in football. Uh, he Obviously, he produced at a high level last year, but the team didn't really succeed. But that's not his fault at all. And he's talented just like his brother. So, I mean, if he did win defensive player of the year, listen, I won't have a problem with that at all because he's, he's an outstanding young player. Yeah, man, for sure. So, moving on to the next awards, uh, we have Rookie of the Year. So, who's your pick? Or I guess we could combine them since, you know, whoever wins one of them is probably going to win overall Rookie of the Year. So, pretty much for me, I have Joe Burrow winning Rookie of the Year and Offensive Rookie of the Year. I think, you know, with the – I think the Cincinnati Bengals have pretty much added talent across the board. So, I think they'll be better as a team. I still think they'll be fourth in their own division uh, because the AFC North is so talented. But, you know, historically, that that award has been like an, a quarterback award. <laughs> and if you think about last year, you know, Kyler Murray, he was 5-10-1, but he put up some some solid numbers. So, you, don't, you know, being is that those type of awards is just about always go to quarterbacks. I personally, I think Josh Jacobs should have been the rookie of the year last year, but he won offensive rookie of the year. So, you know, being is that, that's usually a quarterback award. Like I just mentioned, uh, I think Joe Burrow put up some decent numbers, you know, with A.J. Green and Joe Mixon and Tyler Boyd, and, you know, and having John Ross. I think he'll have some weapons to throw the rock to if the offensive line can protect him. So I have him winning offensive rookie of the year and rookie of the year. Uh, in terms of I would have went with Chase Young, uh, but I don't think the Washington Redskins will be good enough. I don't think they'll win enough games for him to get that type of consideration, even though he should. And he probably will be the best rookie next year. But like I said, I think it's been more of a quarterback award versus just the best rookie. I can't disagree with that. Uh, I think it's really going to come down, you know, to, you know, uh, just being real nitpicky. Uh, but I have rookie of the year and defensive rookie of the year is Chase Young. Uh, you know, he set the record. Uh, for Ohio State single season sack leader last year was 16 and a half. And, you know, seeing somebody as dominant as that, there's no way to think, you know, that won't translate to the NFL immediately. Uh, and I just think by him being a defensive player of the year, he'll have an easier transition than Joe Burrow. Because, uh, I mean, looking at, you know, the Redskins up front, they have guys like, you know, Montez Sweat, uh, Ryan Kerrigan. Uh, and a few other pieces. So I think he'll already be in a position to, you know, not have to really shoulder the load of that defense, but he'll be in a position with Ron Rivera as his head coach to, you know, really get after the quarterback and put up some numbers. Uh, and just going to Joe Burrow, uh, I definitely think he could do some things in Cincinnati this season. But, you know, with the shortened offseason and, you know, the fact that uh, it's already pretty tough for a quarterback to – translate success from college to the NFL, I think he'll have a bit of a 
slow adjustment period starting the season off. So that's why I gave Chase Young the edge over Joe Burrow to win Rookie of the Year. I have Chase Young. He's I have him undoubtedly as my defensive rookie of the year. But I think with the amount of talent on the defensive line, I think maybe his statistics won't be, uh, you know, as he won't be as I won't he won't be as productive. I think he'll play a lot, but you know, Montez would will probably take a take a leap forward next year. You know, you know what Ryan Kerrigan has been consistent. You know, they have Deron Payne on the inside and Jonathan Allen and Matthew Adonitis. So I think you know those guys will all be productive next year. So I don't know if his numbers will be, you know. It's gaudy, and will be. I don't think he'll have the numbers necessary, you know, from the defensive standpoint to be, to be rookie of the year. I think I'm expecting somewhere between, you know, maybe seven to ten sacks and at least ten tackles for a loss. But I don't know if that'll be enough uh, to be to be rookie of the year. Well, I think I think he could easily get the ten sacks, and I feel like if he gets ten plus sacks. And then one thing he was real good in in college was not just, you know, getting sacks, but getting strip sacks and forcing fumbles. So I think if he has those numbers, I think he'll be able to edge out Joe Burrow for rookie of the year. Uh, You made some strong strong points. So, I mean, if he did win, you know, I wouldn't have a problem with it either. Uh, I know he would be well-deserving if he did win it. Yeah, for sure. And, I mean, I wouldn't be mad if Joe Burrow won either because, I mean, the Bengals aren't as bad as people are making them out to be. Which brings me to the next pick. Who do you have for comeback player of the year? So, for comeback player of the year, I have wide receiver A.J. Green of the Cincinnati Bengals. Uh, let, you know, back at 20, he's been, you know, he he's had some injuries over his career. And uh, last he missed all of last season uh, with a foot injury, if I'm not mistaken. But you know, last time he played back in 2018, he only played nine games, and he still had he still was averaging 77 yards a game. So he was well on his way to another thousand yard campaign. In uh, every season where he's played at least 13 games, he's had a, at least a thousand yards. And outside of last year, the only other season that he didn't have a thousand yards was 2016, and uh, he only played 10 games, but he still had 964 yards in 10 games. So, and you know, that's been with Andy Dawson his entire career. So I think Andy Dawson will be a better. I think I'm sorry. I think Joe Burrow will be a better quarterback than Andy Dawson will. So I, you know, I, I fully expect AJ Green, you know, with some time off to heal his body, I expect him to be a thousand yard receiver again. Yeah, man. Once again, we agree on this one too. Uh, AJ Green was also my pick for comeback player of the year. Like I said, people really uh, don't give the Bengals as much credit for the talent that they do currently have on this roster. I think A.J. Green, when healthy, is easily a top six or seven receiver in the league because, uh, like you said, he produces year in and year out. You know, he's a perennial pro bowler. He He's always up there with at least a 1,000 yards receiving. And then you brought up the point that Joe Burrow, to me, is an upgrade also over Andy Dawson. You know, with the better arm, he has better uh, touch on the ball. He throws with better anticipation. Uh, and Andy Dawson will – I mean, sorry, A.J. Green will really provide Joe Burrow with that, you know, down-the-field threat, a guy who can go up and win 50-50 balls and, you know, be reliable and move the chains on third down. So I think A.J. Green would be the easy, easy choice for comeback player of the year. Yeah, like you said, we've agreed on a lot of these picks, and uh, this one we definitely agree on. No doubt, no doubt. So that brings us to the last award, who you think, 
who do you think will be the NFL's coach of the year next season? I think with a lot of awards, sometimes uh, the narrative is just as important as the results at times. It's what it seems like to me. So with that being said, I have Bruce Arians uh, winning coach of the year for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. I think they'll be around 10-6 and six or 11-5 and five, uh, as opposed to the 7-9 and nine record last year. And I think, you know, that uh, along with Tom Brady, you know, you think where the franchise has been uh, pretty much since the last Super Bowl they won, they've been pretty much, you know, below average to an average team. So I think, you know, I think Tom Brady will be able to get them into the playoffs. And I th- so I think that'll give Bruce Arians the edge. Uh, I had Cal- I thought about picking Kyle Shanahan, uh, but I think the 49ers will pretty much be good again this year. I don't think it'll really be much, you know, improvement from last year. I think it'll be an excellent team again. So, uh, you know, I kind of gave out – I gave him the edge to Bruce Arians because of the improvement that I think the Buccaneers will make from this last year to this year. Yeah, okay. I wouldn't be mad if Bruce Arians won it, but I think one big thing, your last point, if the if the Buccaneers do improve, I think it'll be more so a reflection of the upgrade of players. But for me, a team coming off a Super Bowl loss – I mean, you pretty much have your same roster intact, minus, you know, the additions of Trent Richardson. I mean, Trent Williams. Man, Trent Richardson was awful. Uh, but, you know, you brought in Javon Kinlaw in the draft. Uh, and, you know, the loss of DeForest Buckner will be big. But like I said earlier, uh, they have some guys on the D-line that can rotate and come in and fill in uh, so that there's not much drop-off. But if you have a team with sustained success again after a Super Bowl loss, I think that's a reflection of the great coaching and the leadership in place. Uh, and I think that's why Kyle Shanahan should be a primary candidate for Coach of the Year if he repeats last year's success. You know, like I, I don't have any, you know, I don't have any quarrels with that. Like I mentioned, like I said, I also thought about Kyle Shanahan. So, you know. They'll be great again. You know, I think a lot of times they don't pick coaches who have repeat success in terms of, you know, if they're consistently winning, I don't think they they typically get the recognition that they deserve, uh, like Bill Belichick. Like, I don't know how many he has on hand off the top of my head, but I know he should have a lot more than what he does have uh, in terms of coaches of the year. So, if you know. I'm not mistaken, he may only have one or two. So he like definitely if, should be in the running every year. <laughs> exactly. So if he only has one or two, that's completely ridiculous. Uh, we both know. Bill Belichick has pretty much been the best coach in the NFL for the last 20 years, uh, year in and year out. So, you know, he should definitely have more. So, like I said, you know, most of the time it's about uh, major improvements, and I think the 49ers will pretty much be dominant like they were last year. Okay, yeah, he has three. Belichick has three. Which I still feel is not enough. (laughs) Now, out of 20 years, that's almost like the case with LeBron for MVP. He could win it almost every year, but, you know, you have voter fatigue, so they want some new guys, which, I mean, Bruce Arians also won it back in, what, 2015 with the Cardinals? Uh, If I'm not mistaken. I believe that was their year they went to the NFC Championship and got whooped by the Panthers. (laughs) Oh, yeah, I remember that. They got beat down. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I think that was the year Arians won Coach of the Year. But, yeah, I don't think there's much argument between any of those picks. And, like I said, even the ones we disagreed on, I wouldn't be mad if those guys won it. So, you know, we'll see how that shakes out next season. So, moving on to our next topic, 
Uh, today is Cam Newton's birthday, so I thought it was only right that we talked about him on the show. So, Jimmy, will he suit up as a starting quarterback this season? Uh, it, it pains me to say this, being a Cam Newton fan that I, I've been ever since his days in Florida. But I honestly don't believe he'll be a starting quarterback next year unless uh, there's a significant injury. I think, you know, it's a lot of questions surrounding Cam, you know, with coronavirus. You know, people, the teams have not been able to, you know, look at the medicals and actually uh, view him up front. Only thing you have to go by is his workout videos on YouTube. And we both know, you know, we all know that's not enough to evaluate a quarterback. Uh, you know, last time we saw Cam, uh, he wasn't he wasn't playing well at all. But I think that was because of injury. He suffered a list Frank injury in the third preseason game last season. And uh, he played the first two games, you know, with that injury. And he was, was not himself. He was not good at all. You know, they decided to shut him down for the rest of the year. And you think about 2018, uh, those first eight games, he was looking better than he did the MVP year, especially throwing the football. He was completing about 70% of his passes, which is a far cry from what we're used to seeing from Cam Newton. And then he suffered this shoulder injury uh, by the hands of T.J. Watt, as you mentioned earlier. And uh, he hasn't been the same since then. He suffered a couple injuries since then. You know, I think teams are scared of Cam Newton uh, in terms of being their starter. And I think, you know, with his personality, I think his teams don't want to bring him in even to be a backup. Uh, and I don't understand why. He's an MVP in this league. He's proven he's led a team to a Super Bowl. You know, he's won the NFC Championship game. So I, I don't understand. But, you know, I think it all depends on, you know, what kind, what kind of talent you have on your roster and what your offensive system is like on whether you want to bring him in or not. And I don't think Cam is the type of, you know, he recently said he was, after saying he wasn't open, to being a backup, he came back like a few days later and said he was open to being in the backup role. So, you know, we'll see where it goes from there. But honestly, I don't think he'll be a starter this year, maybe the year after. But this year, I don't see it happening unless there's a major injury to a quarterback, to whatever team he's on. Yeah, uh, I'm right with you. I don't I don't think he'll be suiting up as a starting quarterback uh, either, like you said, unless, you know, a starting quarterback – has a major injury and there's a team, you know, looking to contend and, you know, not have much drop off. But I think it's just a reflection of, you know, like you said, not his talent, but more so to do with his injuries. You know, like you said, with the current uh, environment and, you know, what's going on, teams uh, haven't had their personal doctors uh, to, you know, have the opportunity to examine him and truly see how healthy he is. Because when you take into account his lengthy health history, uh, along with his physical playing style, uh, that, that uh, you know, brings huge question marks to teams' forethoughts. Uh, and just, you know, we haven't seen Cam. Last time he was healthy was maybe, what, two, three years ago? And, you know, like you said, he did have that one outlier year where North Turner was his offensive coordinator. And he was completing about 67% of his passes. Uh, but outside of that, I mean, that's never just the kind of quarterback he's been. Uh, what made him the best player in the NFL at one point was, you know, his ability to be a playmaker and be a difference, you know, with his legs and in the running game. Uh, so just when you have a guy who's that, that vulnerable to hits constantly with his playing style, uh, along with, you know, like his ego, like you said, I don't think Cam would be able to accept a backup job in the NFL. And personally, I don't think he should accept the job as a backup 
uh, quarterback in the NFL because we all know that he's way more talented than that. Than that. Like, he's no Andy Dalton. Like, he shouldn't be that guy, you know, standing on the sideline holding a clipboard. I just can't see Cam being that guy. Uh, so, you know, with that combination of things, I think it's in his best interest that if he's not a starter, then he should just sit out and continue to get healthy this season. You know, I, I agree with you, man. I, he definitely – he's entirely too talented to be a backup quarterback. We've seen him, you know, carry the Panthers franchise on his back, you know, since he entered the league. And I think one thing that doesn't get noticed is the lack of help that he's had on the offensive side. If you think about it, he's had since he his first year he had Steve Smith, and that was the last thousand yard wide receiver. Well, he's had two thousand yard wide receivers since he's been in the league. That was Steve Smith his rookie year and Kelvin Benjamin. Other than that, his team has been led and receiving by Greg Olson and last year, you know, Christian McCaffrey this last couple of years. So I think you know the lack of receiving options and you know just having a tight end and him having to carry the ball so much. I think that's contributed to, you know, his lackluster passing passing numbers. I think that's contributed greatly. And so, you know, I think, you know, I think nobody really considers those things when they talk about Cam Newton as a passer. And I think that's important. You know, most of these statistically dominant quarterbacks have consistent receiving weapons. You know, back when they when they went to Super Bowl, his leading receiver was I want to I want to say was Tay again. That was his leading wide receiver. Uh, I think Greg Olson led the team in receiving yards, but in terms of just wide receivers, you know, Ted Ginn was his his leading one, and I think that's a problem. Ted Ginn should Ted Ginn should be no one's leading receiver, and I think Jericho Cotri was second behind Ted Ginn. I think Philly Brown, who's no longer even in the league, so you know he t- you took those guys to the Super Bowl, and you know you don't they don't give him any credit for that, and I think you know a lot of times you know these talent evaluators and you know these GMs don't like a guy with a personality like their quarterbacks to be cookie cutter and uh, that's not Cam's new personality at all Cam is you know a billion dollar smile you know a lot of energies charismatic and he's a monster on the field and he's gonna let you know about it and I don't think a lot of I think that turns off a lot of coaches and you know GMs and I don't really understand it man I completely agree with you especially about that last point I just really don't get, you know, the fact that, you know, GMs, they're just turned away by this black quarterback, you know, with this alpha mentality. Uh, And, you know, like you said, a loud personality. And I think that's what will make it even tougher, you know, like we said, for him to be a backup quarterback. You know, just having that starter always looking behind them, you know, with this guy who's, you know, has loud personality. And I'm pretty sure, you know, like we said, he could have said it, but I don't really see him accepting a backup job in the NFL because we all know that he's way more talented than that. So I don't know. Unless, you know, things get back started up in time and doctors are able to evaluate him, I don't think he'll be on the NFL roster by the time uh, the NFL season starts. Uh, You know what? I – you know, that's that's a real possibility, but I feel like he should join a roster and just try to take the starter spot, you know, force them to give you the spot, you know, because uh, I think he's that kind of guy. I think, you know, you put him on the right team, you know, and without – if it's just strictly football, no politics involved, you know, Cam, go take somebody's spot, man. I ho- hopefully, you, hopefully, you know, I pray to God that you, this gets to you, bro. But, man, sign with a roster and take somebody's spot because you, you know how good you are, man. You know – 
you know where you belong in this league. You know what you've done for this league. So, man, go take somebody's spot, man. Yeah, but, man, you know how it goes. Politics can't really be left out of anything. <laughs> but moving on to our next topic, episode 7 and 8 of La the Last Chance documentary aired last night. Jimmy, what were your takeaways from those episodes? Man, first of all, I want to say, you know, being a member, you know, wanting to be a member of the media, I think, you know, those, that theory about, you know, the death of his father was completely out of hand. And the journalist in me was kind of appalled last night. You know, you, you don't create stories based off of allegation. You only create stories off a of hard fact. And I think that was completely out of line. I think it was ridiculous that he had to put up with that, uh, you know, I don't gambling and you know maybe it could have led to it but you know you don't want to speculate on stuff like that that's that's terrible that's a terrible thing you know to say about somebody you know to say about somebody the death of somebody's parent and you know I don't, I don't understand i don't even know how michael jordan you know dealt with that for that for so long and i so you know hats off to him uh for doing that and also you know the retirement you know obviously we weren't born then but you know for somebody at the height at the peak of their powers to just walk away from the game like that, I think that was kind of amazing to see. And, you know, like the death of his father definitely contributed to it. And, you know, I was watching it, and I think his agent mentioned, well, somebody mentioned that he wanted to retire after the 92 championship. Uh, he wanted to retire, but he had, you know, the Olympics. And, you know, and he just came back for one more year to try to win another ring. He said that, you know, nobody ever won three in a row, and he wanted to be the guy to do that, and he was able to do that, and I think that made it easier for him to walk away. Another thing I want to mention is, you know, Scottie Pippen, and, you know, I guess his quote-unquote selfishness, you know, they showed uh, against the Knicks where Phil Jackson drew up the last play for Tony Kukoc, and, Phil, and uh, Scottie Pippen didn't like that, so he sat out there play. Uh, on the surface, it looks selfish, but thinking about it, I completely understand. Uh, it was this the one time where he wasn't in Michael Jordan's shadow, and he was the man, and he led the team. You know, this was his moment, and he gave it to Tony Kukoc. Uh, and I'm pretty sure he didn't understand why Phil took that away from him, his one opportunity. So, you know, I think if I was in Scottie Pippen's position, I might have done the same thing. And Pippen said, you know, thinking back on it, he probably would have done the same thing. And I completely understand. I don't condone selfishness, you know, from a team aspect, but, you know, I completely understand that. Uh, you know, and also, you know, when Jordan coming back, you know, with 17 games left in the season and losing to Orlando, uh, I don't fault him at all. Uh, he pretty much had, what, two, three weeks to get in basketball shape, playoff basketball shape. I don't think nobody can do that. And so I don't I don't fault them at all for their loss. You know, Shaq and Penny were on another planet that year. Horace Grant was great. You know, Dennis Scott, Nick Anderson, that was a, that was a, a great, solid young team. You know, you know, when they lost, I don't. I don't count that as a blemish on Jordan's record. I don't think nobody could have came in with 17 games left and still dominated in the playoffs. You know, another thing I took off, took away was, you know, Michael Jordan's competitiveness. You know, he pushed players, you know, past the limits. You know, and a lot of guys were uncomfortable with that. You heard, you heard about the, the fight with Steve Kerr. And one thing I didn't know, I always thought MJ, you know, initiated the fighting. But Steve Kerr is the one that passed the first league. So I find that kind of interesting, and I I'm, I wasn't surprised when I found that the Michael Jordan reacted by punching him in the face and giving him the black eye. This seems, you know, like something Michael Jordan would do. Uh, and like, you know, when it comes to his competitive man, it, he would do anything to win. And I think, you know, when you talk about leaders, you know, 
a lot of guys can't lead like that. A lot of guys aren't comfortable with being a bad guy. But I think one trait that all great leaders have, they don't ask their teammates to do nothing that they wouldn't do. And Michael Jordan specific, specifically excuse me, stated that you know, in the documentary. So I think, you know, that that resonated with me. And also, you know, them coming back to sweep Shaq and Penny. Uh, when they lost, you know, Michael Jordan was clearly upset. And it said he was hell-bent in the offseason on avenging their loss. And, you know, you saw him working out, and he like he was out for blood when the year started. You know, and they ended up sweeping him uh, the, the year after, you know, winning the championship against uh, a very talented Supersonics team. And I think that team, the Supersonics team doesn't get enough credit. They were a great team, man. GP was a point guard and won defensive player of the year. I think that goes unnoticed. And Sean Kemp was a perennial 20-10 and 10 guy. They had Sam Perkins and, uh, you know, they had Detlef Shrimp, who was a, one of the one of the best six men, you know, I've known of in NBA history. And, you know, and Michael Jordan, he actually laughed at, you know, Gary Payton, the glove. <laughs> he laughed, you know, Gary Payton said he thought it was getting problems. And Michael Jordan, like, bust out laughing, was, like, crying laughing. And so I found that. I find that kind of hilarious. Man, he like he laughed at a defensive player of the year. <laughs> that's that's what he did. So, you know, those were some of the things that I took away from, you know, the episode seven and eight. Yeah, man, I think I got a lot of the same takeaways. Uh, you know, first off, just starting with, you know, his harsh treatment towards his teammates and just like, you know, the extreme standard that he held those guys towards. And, you know, the mention of, of, you know, him punching his teammates, uh, Steve Kerr, Will Perdue, uh, you know, cussed out Scott Burrell. And, you know, they didn't include it in the documentary, but uh, he made his teammate Dennis Hobson cry, like, one time. Like, it, it was just crazy, you know, just seeing how mentally and emotionally draining and, you know, how much of a toll he took on those guys. Uh, but, you know, that was just another peek into his competitiveness, like you said, and just doing whatever it took to win because he had the mentality of if you're not playing to win, then, you know, why are you playing? And, you know, he held his teammates to that same standard. And I think that, you know, had a lot to do with the way he treated him them the way that he did. And clearly, as you see, it paid off in six championships. Um. Another thing, like you said, the whole James Jordan uh, situation, uh, you know, I've never, uh, you know, came to terms with what completely happened about that. But, you know, just seeing the way the media speculated so many things with that, you know, even trying to, you know, blame it on Mike's gambling problems and, you know, saying that David Stern has suspended him as opposed to him retiring. Uh, it'll always be eerie as to, you know, why a guy in the prime of his career at his peak would just suddenly retire. But, you know, looking at the pressure that the media put on him and then combined with the fact that he lost his dad and his dad was, you know, like his best friend and, you know, his mentor. Uh, so, you know, all that combined with, you know, him playing baseball for his dad's memory, which was always his dad's dream. Uh, I think that, you know, contributed to why he ultimately did retire. Uh, and then, you know, touching on Scottie Pippen, you know, just seeing how, you know, another thing that separates Michael Jordan from a lot of other people was, you know, his leadership. And, you know, when it was Michael Jordan's turn, when Phil Jackson said, all right, we're going to take the ball out of your hands. And that was when he was uh, 
passing to John Paxson. And, you know, he ended up being key down the stretch in the finals against the Lakers. Uh, but when it was Scottie Pippen's turn without MJ, you know, like you said, Phil Jackson drew up that play for Tony Kukoc uh, in game three against the Knicks. And, you know, Scottie Pippen just up and quit on the team. And, you know, that was one thing that was always missing from, you know, Scottie Pippen's arsenal. It was never a question of his talent. But it was more so, you know, the intangibles and being that leader. I mean, even when he went to Portland, you know, he had multiple teammates that were, you know, saying he just wasn't that leader that the team needed, you know, when they were experiencing adversity. And I think that would be, uh, you know, always be one big knock on Pippen's legacy. Um, and then, you know, like you said, it touched on, you know, his competitiveness again with the whole uh, Gary Payton situation and the way he brought up, you know, once they switched him on MJ, uh, that it took a toll on Mike. And it was hilarious to me when Michael Jordan, you know, he just started tripping out at that interview. And I thought that was pretty funny. Uh, so nonetheless, you know, the, shi- the series has shifted, you know, towards mainly the 97-98 campaign with that being the highlight of the season. Uh, so these last two episodes next week, uh, I'm expecting a lot of fireworks for sure. Oh, yeah. And another thing I forgot to mention was the scene of him crying, you know, on the floor holding the basketball after winning against the Supersonics. That was, you know, that was a touching scene considering, you know, how much he loved his father. And like you mentioned, it was pretty much like his best friend. So, you know, I can only imagine, you know, the emotion that he was going through after those past, you know, walking away from the game, you know, the loss of his father, you know, all the doubt, all the anger, all the fuel, you know, just culminating in another championship. So, you know, I could imagine only the the emotions that he went through. And I think that was, a, you know, that was one of my favorite scenes of, of the entire series so far. Yeah, for sure, man. That was definitely a scene that, you know, resonate, resonated with me as well. Uh, just, you know, seeing all that. But moving on to our next topic. Jimmy, who do you think is the most underrated player in the NBA right now? You know, for that one, that was a simple a simple question for me. And I think that guy is uh, Jimmy Butler. You know, this year, Jimmy Butler, uh, he plays for the Miami Heat, and he has them in contention, had them in contention for a championship, you know, before coronavirus, you know, stopped the league. Championship. Uh, he was av- championship. I don't know about that. They were good, but I don't know about championship. I mean, you know, in the playoff time, you can't never count anybody out. You know, things, you know, people could get hurt. You know, Giannis could have got hurt or something like that, unforeseen, you know. But, you know, like I said, Jimmy Butler this year is averaging 20 points, uh, six rebounds, six assists, and not nearly two steals per game. We both know he's one of the better two-way players the game has to offer. Uh, He's not much of a shooter. Uh, but he can shoot this year. He's shooting about 25% from three, which is absolutely terrible. But, you know, he finds a way to lead. He's one of those intense leader type guys, and he expects excellence out of you. And I think one of those things, one of the things that makes me like him so much is because is every team that he's been on has gotten better. Uh, when he went to Minnesota, they went to the playoffs. Uh, when he went to Philly, you know, they took the eventual champions to seven games, and it took a lucky shot by Kawhi to eliminate them, to keep them from getting to the conference championship. And, you know, 
And after every team he's left, they've, they've gotten worse. He left Minnesota, and they missed the playoff. They've, they've gotten worse. He left Philly, and they went from a three seed the year before to a six seed this year. So, you know, with, with that combination of things, I think, you know, he's one of the more underrated players in the league. And I think his best attribute is his ability to lead and his intensity and, you know, the way he can help elevate his guys, you know, and with a team that's with, with Miami Heat, they have like seven guys that are averaging double figures. So they don't need Jimmy Butler to go out there and score 25, 26 points a game. So, you know, he's content with his 20, and he's only taking 13 shots. So he's doing it on the low amount of shots, which is, you know, one of the more impressive things, you know, in terms with, you know, his scoring ability. So, you know, with that combination of things, I think Jimmy Butler is one of the most underrated players in the league. Okay, okay. I can't argue with that. Uh, but, I mean, this player that I'm about to name was definitely somebody who, you know, heading to this season, specifically after he got a huge contract extension. Uh, a lot of people just completely counted him out and just acted like, you know, all his talent had just been, like, zapped away or something. But uh, going off this season specifically – I think the most underrated player in the NBA right now is Chris Paul. Uh, you know, Damian Lillard, who was the most underrated to me up until last year's playoffs, uh, he basically sent the Thunder into rebuild mode. After he sent them home last year, uh, both Paul George and Russell Westbrook left town. So they completely had to rebuild that team and have a new identity. And now Chris Paul has them humming right along to where they're fifth in the West, which we know is a way tougher conference than the East. Uh, and, you know, just looking at his impact, the way he's uh, helped with the development of guys like Shea Gilgis, Alexander, and, you know, Dennis Schroeder, who was already there. Uh, this team was definitely a problem for a bunch of teams, you know, night in and night out. And, you know, Chris Paul's – He's one of the highest IQ players we've ever seen in the NBA. And I mean, not even just his offensive IQ, but also defensive IQ. You know, he's led the league in steals six times. He's a nine-time all-defensive player. Um, and, you know, not only include – not to mention, you know, his assist acumen and, you know, his, his arsenal as a scorer as well. Uh, with OKC this year – he actually had gotten back to all-star form, and he was averaging, you know, 17.7 points a game, 6.8 assists a game, and he was also getting five rebounds along with his usual steal in the half. Uh, so I think the impact he had on that team and, you know, the seamless transition that he was he was able to help foster in building that team's new identity, I don't think that could be overlooked, especially taking into account that he's in the Western Conference. You know, you get no pushback from me. Uh, I think Chris Paul is definitely underrated. I think when he got sent to OKC, I think people thought it was just going to be the end of CP3 as we know him. But, you know, CP3 is too much of a competitor and leader to, you know, just go away. So I definitely don't have a problem with that. For sure, for sure. All right, so moving on to the next topic, uh, the University of Tennessee's football team has been on a tear in recent weeks. Uh, so they're now up to 21 commits in this 2021 class. 
Uh, they're number two in the nation and number one in the SEC. Jimmy, what do you make of this recent run for the Vols? <laughs> Man, I, I think the Vols are on their way back to being a powerhouse in the SEC. You know, we've seen them have great classes in previous years, but they haven't been able to pretty much put it all together. But I think the big thing for Tennessee, you know, and you go there, so obviously you know more than I do in terms of, you know, how the team operates in the recruiting. So I think, you know, with I think that the thing for them is, you know, who is going to be the quarterback going forward and how well does he play? You know, you can have all the, you know, you can have the best skill players, the best D-line, best O-line, you know, best defensive backs, linebackers. But if the quarterback is terrible, then they kind of, that puts, you know, that makes you mediocre. You know, I think, I think in years past, Tennessee has had a lot of talent. But they've been mediocre at the quarterback position. I think that's held them back. So, you know, I want to I want to know, you know, what the quarterback situation is going to be like. You know, who is going to emerge is is JG. Is he going to be the guy that the Tennessee recruited him to be? Is is he finally going to be that guy? Because if he is, then I think, you know, Tennessee could possibly compete for a national championship, you know, with the amount of talent that they're bringing in. So, you know, man, you know, it's going to be interesting to see as a Florida fan. Obviously, I don't like this at all. And they've taken some of Florida, they've taken some of Florida recruits, but I still think we'll find a way to beat Tennessee. We still the big dogs, you know. We've been the big dogs for like the last 10, 15 years, you know, in terms of in terms of uh, Florida versus Tennessee. So you know, you know, the the sport is better when Tennessee is, you know, is great. You know, it makes for a more competitive conference, a more competitive division, and it makes for better football on Saturdays. So you know, for those reasons, I hope Tennessee, you know, is going back to national championship contention. Yeah, for sure, bro. And I think something that this is, you know, bringing back to light with people, you know, recruiting has never been an issue for Tennessee. I mean, like you said, we're one of the most storied, you know, schools in the SEC. You know, we have that rich history. Uh, Jeremy Pruitt's a Nick Saban disciple, so he already brings that appeal. Uh, you know, Philip Former's back as the, as the athletic director. He has all the programs, you know, trending in the right direction and trying to compete at a national championship level. And I think with this foundation that they're, that they're bringing in, I think they're probably like a year or two off from re- being right in Atlanta for the SEC championship. Uh, like you said, the biggest question mark these last few years has been the quarterback position. Uh, you know, ever since Bush Jones has departed, there's been a revolving door. We've had Quinn Dormady, uh, JG, Brian Maurer, JT Shroud. You know, last year at one point we had four different starting quarterbacks when you include uh, Jawan Jennings, you know, getting in at Wildcat. But, you know, this cycle, they already have two five-star commits. Uh, they have some defensive players that are pretty exciting. You know, they're bringing in some offensive playmakers. Uh, this freshman class that's already on campus, uh, I don't know if you've heard of Harrison Bailey. He's a quarterback out of Georgia. You know, he competed in one of the best high school leagues in the state of Georgia, and his team won the state championship. And I believe he threw for 4,400 yards, if I'm thinking right off the top of my head. But, like, the dude has a good arm. You know, I think the only big question that he has to prove right now is, you know, of course, translating that success to college football. And I think as far as talent-wise, maybe his pocket mobility. 
But arm talent definitely isn't a question. I mean, he has a cannon. Um, and even in this recruiting class, they gained a commit yesterday from Caden Salter, who's the number one uh, dual-threat quarterback in the state of Texas this year. Uh, and he's a guy that can get it done with his legs. And, you know, not only his legs, but the rare thing about him as a dual-threat quarterback is that he's accurate. Uh, and that stands out on tape. And, you know, even with his deep balls, uh, he's pretty accurate with those as well. But looking at, you know, the team they're bringing back this season, they had a lot of momentum ending last season with that six-game win streak. Uh, and I think when you have that as a selling point, as well as the state-of-the-art facilities, uh, you have guys on the coaching staff with, you know, uh, NFL experience and defensive coordinator Derek Ansley, uh, you know, offensive coordinator Jim Chaney. He's been at Georgia. You know, he coached Drew Brees at Purdue. So, you know, having a track record like that doesn't hurt. Like I said, Jeremy Pruitt's a Nick Saban disciple. And, you know, his connection in the high school ranks uh, really helps him out with recruiting as well. Uh, but when you look at the combination of those factors, I think really all they're missing at this point, like you said, is consistent quarterback play. Uh, and looking ahead to the 2020 schedule, there's no reason, you know, this team shouldn't be an eight or nine win team. And, you know, once they have all the Jeremy Pruitt guys in, I think this current senior class is the last Bush Jones uh, recruit group. Uh, but once you have that full Jeremy Pruitt team in place, I think, you know, this team will definitely be a perennial SEC championship contender. And I think he's definitely building the foundation to get this team going in the right direction. Man, you get no arguments from me. Like I said, you know, when Tennessee is great at football, I think that makes for a better conference and that makes for better football overall. You know, you know, before we were born, you know, Tennessee was, was religiously a powerhouse, you know. And since Peyton Manning left, you know, that team hasn't been – as consistent as consistently good as you would like from a team with that type of prestige, you know. Last time they were really, you know, nine ten win team was when Jalen was when Jalen Hurd and Josh Dobbs and Alvin Kamara were there, and that was like four or five years ago. So, you know, I definitely want to see them get back to uh, to contention, title contention. Yeah, man, I definitely don't think they're far off, but I think I'm definitely bought in. I think the fan base is bought in. And I think more importantly, you know, Phil Farmer is bought in and the players uh, to what Jeremy Pruitt is preaching. And, you know, clearly it must be getting across to recruits. Uh, so I definitely think he has what it takes to get this program back to their heyday. Um, but did you have anything else to add, bro? Uh, no, not at all. All right. Well, I think that'll wrap up this episode of First and Foremost. Remember to give us a follow on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. Uh, continue to like, subscribe, comment. Uh, this podcast is available on uh, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, as well as Anchor. Uh, so that'll do it. Like I said, I'm Quentin Douglas. And I'm Jimmy Covington. All right, and we out. All right, thank y'all.